On July 4th, 1836, newly unseated reform politician William Lyon Mackenzie published a newspaper called The Constitution. In the publication, Mackenzie accused the Upper Canada government and its supporters of corruption and encouraged citizens to prepare for what he called more noble actions than our tyrants could ever dream of. Mackenzie had just lost a seat in the 1836 Upper Canada parliamentary election after being accused by new Lieutenant Governor Francis Bonhead of being a disloyal subject of the British Empire. About a year after the release of his publication, Mackenzie led a group of farmers, hunters, and out-of-work laborers into the forges of Upper Canada to hold a number of weekend reform meetings in the summer of 1837. It was at these meetings that Mackenzie created the Committee of Vigilance, signed as a declaration urging every community in Upper Canada to send delegates to Congress in Toronto to discuss immediate remedies to their grievances and to address the ongoing calls for colony reforms. What would follow immediately after these meetings would be a series of escalating incidents that would eventually lead to rebellions in both Upper and Lower Canada later that year. In response to these violent push and seditious coup attempts, Governor General and High Commissioner of British North America, Lord Durham, was tasked with investigating the political situation that ultimately led to the violent rebellions. Durham was ordered to make recommendations to the British Crown for necessary reforms in order to prevent such acts from happening again. These recommendations were published in a report that is known today famously in Canadian history as the Durham Report. Durham has been lauded for being one of the first British authorities in pre-Canadian history to recommend an introduction of responsible government to the colonies of British North America. However, while history paints Durham as a key figure in the formation of Canada, the British Crown did not exactly accept the recommendations kindly, nor did they allow the British provinces to follow through with it in any type of expedience. Instead, the Crown settled to allow the proposal of a union between Upper and Lower Canada, which resulted in the creation of the United Province of Canada, becoming official with proclamation on the morning of February 10, 1841. Lord Durham didn't live long enough to see his recommendation come to fruition and died in the summer of 1840 before the unitary entity of the Province of Canada could be formed. In fact, it wasn't for another 27 years until Queen Victoria gave royal assent to the British North America Act of 1867, which laid the foundation for confederation of provinces and the Dominion of Canada began to form the nation that we know and recognize today. Canada first began to be formed as a nation in reaction to a series of coup attempts and violent uprisings that pushed the pre-Canadian government and the British Crown to enact reform policy in order to appease a culturally divided public that was increasingly agitated by being ruled over by an anti-democratic oligarch collective of imperialists that were uninterested in granting provisions for open democracy and self-rule. In this podcast series, we will retrace the events that led to the creation of Canada as a nation and how a number of the rebellious uprisings and even outright hostile takeover led to the forming of the country of Canada as we know it. Canada has gone through a number of phases of inner struggle that has seen numerous consolidations of power by means of the same calamities and national crises that shaped the building blocks of how this nation would operate on the global stage from the times of confederation into the 20th century and up until the current present day. We will explore this topic and much more in this brand new podcast series, starting with this first episode of Cue the Coup, Part 1, Founding Fathers.
My name is Al Mack, and you are listening to the Q the Coup podcast from sparkoflifemedia.ca. We are a decentralized and nonprofit media resource for critical storytelling, outreach, and advocacy in Canada and around the globe. Well, if you're still listening, I'm happy you've joined me because this is a project I've been working on for quite some time. We started off with the SparkCast and the Convoy Cult to Canada episode, but has really spiraled into a whole life of its own, this research about Canada and the forming of this nation and how after 155 years, we're still really dealing with the same cultural issues that Canada was dealing with back in the times of Confederation. Ultimately, Canada was founded on a consolidation of power numerous times over, and the types of consolidation of power that we've seen back in the times of Lord Durham and William Lyon Mackenzie are still happening today. They're just happening on a level we kind of just fail to recognize. So in this podcast, we're going to break down the historical significance of numerous events and figures in Canadian history and the roles that they play in establishing the cultural framework that makes up the ordinance of the society that we know as Canada. I think you get the point. So thanks for joining me on what should be a very interesting and thoughtful journey down a very complicated history of a very complicated nation. So let's pick up right where we left off in the year of Canada's Confederacy, 1867. Almost three decades after the Durham Report was published, Canada was given the right of self-governance by the way of the British North America Act of 1867. The Act saw the province of Canada split into Ontario and Quebec, with Nova Scotia and New Brunswick also being added into a united confederation called the Dominion of Canada. While the idea of this unification was presented by Durham in 1939, spawning the Act of Union in 1840, there were still serious tensions among different factions within the province of Canada and its neighboring British colonies to both the east and west, as well as their, at sometimes hostile, American neighbors to the south. In 1859, Alexander Tellet Galt, George Etienne Cartier, and John Ross embarked on a journey to Great Britain to present the British Parliament a proposal for confederation of the British colonies of North America. The three men, who history often recognizes being a part of the original founding fathers of confederation, put the proposal forth to the British monarch who responded to the motion with polite indifference. 
Over the next five years, it became clear that the continued ordinance of the government within the province of Canada, under the terms of the 1840 Act of Union, had rendered itself into a cycle of unsustainable tensions caused by the continuous consolidation of top-down political power. In 1864, a coalition of parties was formed between the rival political factions within Canada West, former Upper Canada, and Canada East, the former Lower Canada, which culminated in the Charlottetown Conference taking place on a late summer day in Prince Edward Island on September 1st, 1864. The main unifying factors at play in the negotiation of Canada's Confederacy were ultimately as a means to prevent further escalation of cultural tensions between the various colonies that made up the province of Canada and its neighbours. In fact, there was a period of several years of legislative paralysis in the province of Canada, which was mostly caused by a need to maintain a double legislative majority in order to pass any laws. This meant that a majority vote had to come from both the Canada East and Canada West delegates in order to make any legislative progress, which within the electoral framework at that period of time almost never happened. During this lengthy period of political deadlock, tensions and upheaval within the political structure began to sway between different factions within the province of Canada. There was strong demographic pressure that was rising as division among differing cultures was coming to a head, causing a demand for the Canadian territories to be redivided with defiance on the separate ethnic, cultural, and religious differences in the population. With that came a need for an incentive to repatriate some groups of the population, as well as a need to reorganize various settlements within the province of Canada overall. There was also a lot of economic nationalism within different cultural groups because of their claims to certain labor. French Catholics in the logging industry within the Anglo regions of Canada West felt alienated among their mostly English Protestant neighbors and saw no prospect for prosperity by moving into and integrating with a mixed society that they felt wouldn't be obligated to preserve their language or culture. The same could be said about Anglo workers in the Canada East region, who also felt alienated in a nation that was mostly governed by Anglophones, though they found themselves living in a region predominantly operated with every aspect of their societal life being communicated in a language completely different from their own. External pressures also lended to the need for some kind of internal unity within the province of Canada and its neighboring British colonies. There was the cancellation of the Canadian-American Reciprocity Treaty in 1865, which was a large free trade agreement between both countries, which Canada benefited from for over a decade, but was cancelled due to the British Crown's unofficial support for the Southern Confederacy during the American Civil War. Now, this kind of gets understated because the Charlottetown Conference of 1864 had already taken place by this time, but the need for an intercolony trade route and a railroad to improve the economic independence of the province of Canada and its neighbors grew exponentially after the U.S. cut off Canada as a trading partner. I think it's fair to say that in and around 1865, it became clear to the colonists of Canada that a cross-continental railroad from eastern Canada all the way towards the Pacific Ocean and the colony of British Columbia would not only be a possibility, but would improve the ability of the British American colonies to defend itself on a transcontinental front should the threat from their southern neighbors emerge once again. The project for the Canadian Confederation was supported by those from the new liberal and traditional conservative political philosophies alike. It was supported by many types of colonists who had both a sympathetic, opposed, and indifferent approach to government and its role in the coming nation's economic development. 
It is argued by many historians of different perspectives that the foundation of Canada was molded out of two different political philosophies, with both the conservative Toryism and new liberalism playing a role in the ideological makeup of the original colonists of Canada's confederation. These unique but compatible ideologies and philosophical political views mesh together in what would create the prototypical building blocks of what I contend we understand today as neoliberalism. Canadian historian Ian McKay describes this in an article written in 2000 entitled The Liberal Order Framework, a prospectus for a reconnaissance of Canadian history. In this article, McKay argues that Canadian Confederation was motivated by the ideology of liberals and the belief of supremacy of individual rights. McKay describes Canadian Confederation as a part of the classic liberal project of creating a liberal order in British North America. Many Canadian historians have adopted this liberal order framework as a paradigm for understanding Canadian history. Meanwhile, other historians have taken a different but congruent philosophical approach to interpret these formative events. In 2008, historian Andrew Smith put forth a very different but complementing view of Confederation, arguing that the politics of taxation was the central issue in the debate over unity among the British North American colonies. Smith contends that the typical classic liberal colonists who believed in free trade and low taxation would have likely been against confederation due to their fears of big government and statism. Smith's argument is that the struggle for confederation pitted a battle between a staunch liberal economic philosophy of individualism, which spurred the rise of the American Revolution in the previous century, against a philosophy of government corporatism, collective capitalism, and state enterprise. The argument for and against Confederation, in Smith's eyes, mostly centered around the role of the state and its overall capacity in the forming of the new nation of Canada's economy. Through my understanding of Smith's interpretation, I see the framework of this new kind of liberalism where both the usage of state enterprise as a means of expanding colonization, which was already established with the Charter and Crown Corporations in British North America, blended into this liberal philosophy of individual freedom and independence by way of civil liberties, provisional sovereignty, freedom of a religion, the right to language, political freedoms, and the separation of church and state. So with this, we have a nation of Canada that is founded on both those liberal philosophies while also allowing for national policy that subsidizes the funding for major infrastructure projects such as the Intercolonial and Pacific Railways. These massively expansive colonization projects would have only been made possible in Canada with economic government intervention and the allowance of state-owned enterprise, which was a key part in the negotiations in the London Conference of 1866. In my 2000 essay, I was trying to get at the way we might overcome what I regard as a really bad habits of Canadian historians and other intellectuals, our tendency to build really formidable silos and engage in almost infinite fragmentation of our field and not talk to each other or read each other's books. I then saw, and I still urgently do see, and a real need to transcend the nationalist, social, cultural history narratives that are operative in this country's two major linguistic communities to give people a research tool with which we could imagine a more integrative paradigm. Liberal order framework. I think there are a few moments in the liberal order article which which do sort of sound like you know a manifesto for rousing all the troops. And but actually, I'm struck by the fact that, that I, and but I would still underline it's one tool among many. 
So I would say, you know, other important abstractions set their colonialism, modernity, capitalism for sure. Um, these are all really significant other tools. But I think liberalism is really important as a way of getting at the Canadian dimensions of these experiences. So on this reading, Canada becomes less a self-evident and obvious thing or an entity or a nation as we keep calling it. It's much more an arrestingly contradictory, complicated and coherent process of liberal rule. The Confederation of Canada was accomplished on March 29, 1867, when the Queen gave royal assent to the British North American Act with the Royal Proclamation stating, We do ordain, declare, and command that on and after the Friday of July 1867, the provinces of Canada, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick shall form one dominion under the name of Canada. Now, it's important to point out that while the British North America Act of 1867 eventually led to Canada having more autonomy and power and self-rule than it previously had, it didn't technically gain full independence from the United Kingdom for another half century. In a ruling published on November 7, 1967, the Supreme Court of Canada stated that Canadian sovereignty was acquired in the period between its separate signature of the Treaty of Versailles in 1919 and the Statue of Westminster in 1931. In fact, because federal and provincial governments were not able to agree on a common charter, Canada was unable to make amendments to its own constitution until it was patriated by Queen Elizabeth II with the Canada Act of 1982. Now, things get even more complicated here because in 1975 while the rest of the nation was dragging their feet on a common charter quebec created the quebec charter of human rights and freedoms which made matters much more confusing between the province of quebec and the rest of canada and the other provinces you see quebec law is unique because quebec is the only province in canada to have a judicial system under which civil matters are regulated by the french heritage civil law while public law criminal law and federal law operate according to Canadian common law. So it's kind of hard to understand, but basically because Quebec's legal system was established before Canada ever existed, way back during the times of New France with Louis XIV in 1664 declaring that New France territory would be ruled by the custom of Paris, a variant of civil law in force in the Paris region at that time. Now, the Treaty of Paris in 1763 changed that for a brief period of time, but then in 1774, the Quebec Act was passed, reinstated the old Quebec civil law system. A key provision of the Quebec Act provided that all disputes related to property and civil rights were to be decided by the former law of Quebec. This phrasing was carried forward in the legislation that was put forth in the British North American Act of 1867. Basically, this section granted all provinces, including Quebec, the exclusive power to legislate with respect to private civil matters, and while the other provinces operate under common law, Quebec continues to apply civil law towards civil private matters. Now, as complicated as that sounds, it's not even as simple as that because Quebec is considered a bi-juridical legal system, meaning that while Quebec charter rules over provincial matters, it does not apply to federally regulated activities in Quebec, which are subject to the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms and or the Canadian Human Rights Act. 
So yeah, it's all a very complicated chronology of history, but it's important to lay out because I think people tend to brush over these matters when looking at Quebec nationalism and how it relates to the forming of Canada's confederation. In the particular instance of Quebec, I think we can once more trace over the idea of new liberalism kind of forming this particular idea of gaining cultural and provisional independence by being a part of Canada's confederation. Quebec didn't really have a collective identity for itself after the Constitution Act of 1791, with the old province of Quebec being split up into Upper Canada and Lower Canada. What followed was three quarters of a century of Quebec being held without an identity separate from Canada. However, through this new liberal idea of provisional independence, freedom of religion, freedom of language, and freedom of association, Quebec managed to gain more autonomy for itself, whereas the other original three provinces, mostly settled by Anglophones, found their national identity through the unification of Canada. Now, even after the British North America Act of 1867, there was still a large contingent of people, particularly in the West, that felt left out of this new race for cultural autonomy. With this, the country of Canada will continue to face an ongoing threat of resistance and uprising, forcing the nation to alter its confederacy and rejaw its borders in concession to the demands of the Indigenous, First Nations, and Métis people of what would later become the Western Plain provinces. When you mention Manitoba, I'll be mindful of the prairie in the province where the old Red River flows. It's a land of shining water where the beaver and the otter play together where the prairie crocus grows. Manitoba, you're my sunshine, my twilight. In 1869, the Hudson's Bay Company surrendered their charter to the British Crown, receiving 300 British pounds of compensation, equal to roughly $60 million Canadian today. It is often cited as a historic anecdote that the Hudson's Bay Company sold Rupert's land and the Northwest Territory to Canada, though the reality is that the company technically had no land to sell, as their charter was essentially just for a trading post monopoly enforceable only on British subjects. The biggest settlement at the time in Rupert's land was the Red River Colony, which is located in and around the area of southern Manitoba, with the focus on the forks of the Red River in present-day Winnipeg. An 1870 census of the region showed that more than 48% of the population in the area of the Red River Colony were Métis, with the other 34% labeled as, quote, English-speaking mixed bloods. The Métis are a cultural group of indigenous and European people who are inhabitants of Midwest North America, including Western Canada, as well as Northern United States and parts of Ontario. The Métis make up 35% of the Aboriginal population of Canada, and roughly just under 2% of the total population, based on a census conducted in 2016. 
The Métis share a history and a culture as a mixed indigenous and mostly French or other European ancestry, which formed their culture into a distinct group through ethnogenesis during the height of the fur trade in North America. As French settlers followed the fur trade westward, they made unions with different indigenous women. The term Métis was originally used as a word to refer specifically to French-speaking people with indigenous heritage, while the term country-born will be used in reference to the descendants of Anglo people with mixed indigenous blood. Eventually, the term Métis would be used to refer to all persons of mixed First Nations European ancestry, especially those with descendants from the historical Red River Métis settlement. Métis leader and lead organizer of the Red River Resistance and founder of the province of Manitoba, Louis Riel, famously wrote these words in reference to his own identity as a Métis person. The Métis have as paternal ancestors the former employees of the Hudson Bay and Northwest companies, and as maternal ancestors, Indian women belonging to various tribes. The French word Métis is derived from the Latin word mixtus, which means mixed. It expresses well the idea it represents. Quite appropriate also was the corresponding English term half-breed in the first generation of blood mixing, but now that European blood and Indian blood are mingled to varying degrees, it is no longer generally applicable. The French word Métis expresses the idea of this mixture in as satisfactory a way as possible and becomes the fact a proper name suitable for our race. Rial offers up an elaboration on the expression of the Métis identity with this example. A little observation in passing without offending anyone. Very polite and amiable people may sometimes say to a Métis person, You don't look like a Métis. You surely can't have much Indian blood. Why, you could pass anywhere for pure white. The Métis, a trifle disconcerted by the tone of these remarks, would like to lay claim to both sides of their origin. But the fear of upsetting or totally dispelling these kinds of assumptions holds them back. While they are hesitating to choose among the different replies that come to mind, words like these succeed in silencing them completely. Ah, bah. You scarcely have any Indian blood. You haven't enough worth mentioning. Here is how the Métis think privately. It is true that our Indian origin is humble, but it is indeed just that we honor our mothers as well as our fathers. Why should we be so preoccupied with the degree of mingling that we have of European and Indian blood? No matter how little we have of one or the other, do not gratitude and familial love require us to make a point of saying, we are Métis. After the highly anticipated sale of Rupert's land from the Hudson's Bay Company, the Canadian government appointed English-speaking Governor William McDougall to preside over the newly purchased territory, which included the Red River Colony. McDougall was highly opposed by the mostly French-speaking and Métis inhabitants of the settlement and was met with a peaceful but strong display of resistance organized by Red River and Métis leaders Louis Riel and John Bruce. McDougall's government was blocked from entering the Red River Colony entirely in the winter of 1869. Meanwhile, Métis leaders created a provisional government, and after inviting an equal number of Anglophone representatives to be a part of the action, they formed what was known as the Convention of Forty in the subsequent elected Legislative Assembly of Assiniboine in the spring of 1870. The Assembly would send three delegates to Ottawa to barter an agreement on behalf of the Red River Colony in what would become the foundation of the Manitoba Act of 1870. So, just to take a quick step back, it's important to point out that despite achieving a large amount of political success with the Red River resistance, there was still a trumped-up form of opposition from non-Métis members of the colony. 
especially from workers' fraternities that identified as Anglo-Protestant. The Canadian Party was founded by a number of ultra-orange agitators in 1869, mostly organized by founder John Christian Schultz and his coadjutors Charles Mayer, William Gaddy, and Thomas Scott. The McDougall government appointed Canadian Party supporters Colonel John Dennis and Major Charles Bolton to raise a militia force to oppose the Métis-led resistance, and though Schultz and his band of agitators ended up being captured and imprisoned at Fort Garry, both Dennis and Bolton managed to evade arrest by Rial and the Métis. The Canadian Party, however, wouldn't stop being a problem for Rial and the Métis there, as a group of political agitators ended up breaking out of prison and managed to reconvene with Major Bolton in Portage la Prairie, where they continued to seek Canadian nationalist recruits in a means of countering the Métis-led resistance. On February 12, 1870, Major Bolton and his newly formed militia force led a party from Portage la Prairie along the Red River, with Schultz and his band of Canadian agitators in tail. Their goal was to overthrow the provisional government, but upon arrival at Kildonan, Bolton allegedly had misgivings about his orders, turned his party around, only to be then captured once again by Métis security forces. Meanwhile, John Schultz and fellow Canadian Party agitator Charles Mayer managed to escape capture and flee to Ontario. Schultz continued to propagate against the Métis-led resistance from Toronto for the remainder of the conflict and played a significant role in swaying public opinion against the Red River's provisional government. Louis Riel demanded that Major Bolton be made an example of, and he was sentenced to death for his interference with the provisional government's negotiations. The pardon of Major Bolton was negotiated by Special Commissioner Donald Smith, who assured Riel he would persuade members of his English parish to elect provisional representatives in exchange for Bolton's life. After Bolton's pardon, imprisoned agitator and Canadian Party member Thomas Scott became increasingly combative in the lead-up to his trial. Some historians suggest that Scott interpreted Bolton's pardon as a weakness on behalf of the Métis and began to viciously taunt the Métis guards, who he openly disdained. Scott was found guilty of insulting the president of the provisional government, defying the order of the provisional government, and resisting arrest of the provisional government. He was sentenced to death for the charges, though none of those charges were considered capital crimes at the time. Both Special Commissioner Smith and Major Bolton pleaded with Rial to commute the death sentence of Thomas Scott, but Smith infamously reported that Rial responded to his pleads by stating, I have done three good things since I have commenced here. I spared Bolton's life at your instance, I pardoned Gotti, and now I shall shoot Scott. Thomas Scott was executed by firing squad on March 4, 1870, near the east side gate of Upper Fort Gary. While there were many eyewitnesses to the execution of Thomas Scott, there are varying retellings of his last words and the actions of which resulted to his death. What we know is that Scott was blindfolded and shot by a firing squad, with the execution witnessed by about a 100 bystanders. Beyond that fact, though, it's not very clear, and it's debated whether or not Scott actually died by the initial shots from the firing squad. Red River Métis leader John Bruce reported to have made the claim that only two of the bullets from the firing squad actually hit Scott, with two small wounds noted in his left shoulder and upper chest. Bruce claimed that a man then came forward and discharged his pistol close to Scott's head, but despite the close range, the bullet only partially penetrated Scott's face. Still alive, Bruce claimed that Scott was then placed in a makeshift coffin and then was left there to die of his injuries. After being placed in the coffin, Bruce's claim is that in his last words, Thomas Scott cried out, For God's sake, take me out of here or kill me. 
Historians have long debated the exact motivation behind the execution of Thomas Scott, as it's widely considered to be one of the most polarizing incidents in Canadian history. Riel wrote in his memoirs that his own justification for the execution was to demonstrate that the Métis should be taken seriously. About two months after the death of Thomas Scott, the Manitoba Act was introduced in the Canada House of Commons by Prime Minister John A. Macdonald and was given royal assent on May 12, 1870. The Métis received 200,000 hectares of land, which would make up the then province of Manitoba. This land was to allow the Métis to hunt freely and to form self-governance with legislative powers to protect Métis rights. Just days after the Manitoba Act had been signed, the Canadian government authorized the military expedition of Colonel Garnet Wolseley in what Canadian authorities at the time called an errand of peace but was widely understood by the Métis as a force sent to quell the resistance. Riel feared that he would be arrested and charged with criminal acts for his execution of Thomas Scott and believed that the Canadian militiamen in the expedition would retaliate by lynching him. On August 24, 1870, Riel and a close group of followers fled Fort Garry and in fear of being targeted by violent acts of reprisal, Riel fled to safety across the Canada-US border and arrived at St. Joseph's Mission in the Dakota Territory in September of 1870. While the success of the Red River resistance ultimately culminated in the Manitoba Act of 1870 and the creation of Manitoba as a province, many terms of the act are still not settled today. The Canadian government used language that was unfamiliar with the Métis people and the concept of law enforcement, deeds to land, and paper money were not fully understood, which resulted in most of the Métis people being cheated out of their allotted land on the settlement of the Métis territory. While the Manitoba Act included protections for the region's Métis people, these protections were never fully realized, as the terms of the recommended treaties were never fully met. In fact, the Canadian government blocked the Métis' attempt to obtain land promised to them as a part of the Manitoba Act, which resulted in many of the Métis people losing their territory completely. Facing increasing acts of state-sponsored racism and a new swarm of white settlers from Ontario, the majority of the Métis people from the Red River Colony moved to what would become Saskatchewan and Alberta. This conflict was a highlight of a period of severe tensions in Canadian history between white settlers and the Métis people. The Métis people of both French and Anglo descent created a newly formed coalition in the wake of the Red River resistance that wished to protect their traditional ways of life against an ever-present and aggressive Anglo-Canadian faction that was aligned with the Canadian government's colonizing agents. Louis Riel was elected three times as a member of the Canadian House of Commons, but in fear of his possible imprisonment and execution, Riel could never take his seat as a member of Parliament. Ce projet de loi confère à Louis Riel le titre honorifique du premier premier ministre du Manitoba. Madam Speaker, it's with great honor that I rise today to introduce the Louis Riel Act, which would rightly honor Louis Riel as the first Premier of Manitoba. Louis Riel founded our province, he formed the first representative government here, and the first Prime Minister of Canada, Sir John A. Macdonald, recognized his authority by engaging in negotiations with him, which eventually saw our province entering into confederation. I want to invite all sides of this House to support this important bill as we get prepared to separate, celebrate Manitoba's sesquicentennial 
and of course, uh, honor the great footsteps of this person in whom we follow. Thank you. In the years following the Red River Resistance, the Canadian government signed what became known as the Number Treaties with various First Nations. These treaties ceded unlawful property rights to almost the entire Western Plains of the unsettled Indigenous land that made up the present-day Western Canada. First Nations signed these treaties in hopes of gracious returns from the Canadian government, who promised economic support for food, education, and medical care. The number of treaties have been widely criticized throughout the history of Canada and play a significant role in the struggle for First Nations rights in Canada today. The Constitution Act of 1982 gives protections to First Nations treaty rights as under Section 35 states, Aboriginal and treaty rights are hereby recognized and affirmed. However, this phrase has never actually fully been defined, and as a result, First Nations must each attest their rights individually in the Canadian courts, as shown in the ruling of the notable Canadian Supreme Court case of R.V. Sparrow in 1990. Unlike previous treaties forged during the times before Confederation, the number of treaties were conducted entirely in a British diplomatic manner, while the previous treaties were negotiated using both First Nations and European tradition. First Nations leaders were given translators, either of European or Métis descent, who were to interpret what was being said during the course of the negotiations. What can be noticed when comparing the written documents used by the government officials and the oral traditions used by First Nations is that a significant difference can be demonstrated. The reality of this can be laid out with proof when examining the diaries of those like Indian Commissioner Duncan Campbell Scott, who wrote a detailed journal account of the negotiation of Treaty 9 to Treaty 11. There are also evidential claims from First Nations people that Alexander Morris, second lieutenant governor of Manitoba, failed to mention key terms like the surrender clause in the treaty text of the negotiation for Treaty 6, which led to massive miscommunication between the two parties. Evidence of these differences can be found among the rare pieces of written material and documentation made by First Nations chiefs during the Treaty 3 negotiations. Chief Powassan took detailed notes of the meetings, which shows differences in the understanding of what was being offered during the talks due to the language barriers. The use of language and specific wording during the negotiations within the treaties is also a high point of contention. The language and phrasing used by the commissioners during the number treaties negotiations addressed the First Nations tradition by giving them the title of children. While the crown was identified as Queen Mother, the commissioner would recognize First Nations people as children and the crown as Queen Mother and ensured the First Nations people would be protected from danger by their parents and would enjoy their freedoms. As the negotiations of the treaty 
treaties will come to a close, the language used was almost always significant to First Nations people. Phrases in the closing and seal of the numbered treaties would reference time in relation to the natural world. For instance, you will always be cared for all the time, as long as the sun walks, was an alliteration used to appeal to the First Nations people. The first number of treaties would be signed between 1871 and 1877. In the openings for the negotiations for Treaty 7, the representatives for Canada were Lieutenant Governor of the Northwest Territories, David Laird, and James McLeod, Commissioner of the Northwest Mounted Police. Laird opened Canada's side in the negotiations by stating the facts about the high rates of decline in the Buffalo population and how they proposed to help by introducing new laws to protect the herds from an increasing threat of hunters and white settlers. The importance of the Buffalo for the Indigenous in 1877 was of high priority due to their dependence on the herds for food stability. After two weeks of negotiation, Blackfoot Chief Crowfoot and Kainai Nation Chief Red Crow agreed upon the treaty and it was signed by all leaders on September 22, 1877. There was strong evidence to support the fact that Indigenous people did not understand that they were surrendering their land to the government by making this deal. Overall, the impact of the treaty was far worse than the First Nations people could have likely ever imagined. The buffalo disappeared at a rapid rate, with different nations' hunting territory being overlapped by others, as per the treaty agreements. The number of settlers that came to the area increased exponentially in response to the treaty, putting further strain on what was an already heavily depleted food supply. Meanwhile, the Canadian government's claim to lend aid for a transition to agricultural lifestyle never occurred, and the reserves that the nation were relocated to had unsustainable land that would not support the requirements for a sustainable nation. The federal government would often use treaty violations as a method of asserting control over both Indigenous and Métis people. This led to First Nations territory in present-day Alberta, which was controlled by Blackfoot First Nations, being handed over to the Canadian Pacific Railway through manipulative negotiations overseen by Catholic missionary Albert Lacombe in 1882. Later that year, Cree Chief Big Bear, who had held out of negotiations of Treaty 6 for over five years, was forced to make concessions to the Canadian government, signing the treaty in exchange for food supplies to prevent his people from starving. Unbeknownst to Big Bear and his people, the food rations that the First Nations were to receive was solely based on the condition that the historically nomadic Cree and the Sinoboy people would agree to settle in one permanent location for their nation's reserve. This was not only impractical for Big Bear's people, but it was nearly impossible. The indigenous people of the Western Plains at this time were already struggling for a food source due to the dwindling buffalo, which made deciding on a single permanent location ultimately undoable. In the winter immediately following the signing of Treaty 6, Big Bear and his people failed to receive any food rations outlined in their agreement based on their supposed failure to choose a permanent settlement. It was understood by Big Bear that he would be unable to garner a reasonable agreement with the Canadian government, and with that, the Cree chief began to lose influence over his people. The younger and more aggressive Cree leader Wandering Spirit started to gain more influence over the Plains Cree, who were beginning to face an escalating conflict caused by ecological changes due to expansion of westward colonization. On March 24, 1884, an emergency meeting in the electoral district of Lorne in the Métis village of Batoche was held. At this meeting, representatives voted whether 
or not they would ask exiled Métis leader Louis Rial to return to the Métis colony of Saskatchewan Valley in order to help lead their cause against the oppressive actions of the Canadian government. After two months of organizing by both the French and English-speaking representatives of the Métis, it was resolved to send a delegation to the Montana Territory to ask Rial to return to his people and help lead them once again. 